From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. And we're looking today at the changing face of entertainment on the Strip with some of those changes hearkening back to the first year of the pandemic. It was in that year, 2020, when the long-running show La Rev closed at the win. To replace it, Awakening opened in 2022. That high-tech show, however, did not hit the ground running. Some audiences were confused by the story. Ticket sales weren't great. But producers have made some changes. Can it rebound? And speaking of rebounds, how did Cirque du Soleil do it? They faced bankruptcy during the 2020 shutdown. Now they're seeing higher revenues than before the pandemic. Following these local entertainment developments and many more is Las Vegas entertainment columnist John Castellamitas. John, welcome back. Good to see you, sir. Oh, John, didn't I tell you? Before the interview, you were supposed to answer every question in a singing voice since you've been <laughs> taking singing lessons. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. If one. I had a nickel for every time somebody said that to me. Oh, lounge act. There yeah. we go. Everybody. Bill Murray. <laughs> but let's uh, let, let, let's start with Awakening. You okay. have seen the retooled version. What's changed? Well, um, short answer, not a lot. Um, they're... they're, st- they're what what the producers of Awakening are saying is this is the they they dropped the show down um, for a time to uh, recast a, a scene and add some music and and the uh, tweaking of the show is going to be an ongoing process. So at this point, um, there's one scene called the Water Realm that's been kind of um, uh, changed and adjusted a little bit and and mostly be with a with new music from Brian Tyler as there's a new song in it that's that's actually very good. Um, and after that, um, there's not a whole lot discernible. If you've seen the show uh, at its opening and went, were to go back this week, it's it's uh, it's not as if they've taken and completely changed the order of acts or dropped significant acts or um, anything of that nature. They're just uh, tightening it, I think is the best okay. way to say it. You know, initial criticisms were that the show looked and sounded good, you know, mm-hmm. amazing technical aspects to it. But the story was intricate and hard to fully decipher is the story important in the show? Well, I think it is because there's a lot going on in Awakening that you're wondering how it is supposed to um, fit into the great narrative. You know, you see, um, you know, things just, you know, you see magic actually, you see, you know, puppets produced at certain moments in the show according to the narration, and you have to be paying attention to what that means. Now, if you disengage, uh, from Awakening and just watch the scenes, you can have a different kind of entertainment experience than they really probably intended or expected, and you can enjoy the show that way. But um, it's it's very difficult in today's Las Vegas to um, take a show like that with so much uh, to offer visually in terms of uh, dance, in terms of puppetry, in terms of t- uh, video technology and sound technology, and tell a story that people are going to be able to follow because there's so much going on. You, you, the the human mind can only process so much at one time, mm. you know, and, and Awakening seems to have, have gone beyond what the average theater goer can process in one sitting. That's the, the key issue, in my opinion, of Awakening as a, perf- as a piece of performance. That's the thing they need to look at. Wait, with the retooling, do you think the story doesn't sound as linear or doesn't seem as linear to an audience? It's more, it's more you can follow it better now than you could before. But here, the, the thing with Awakening is you can't really do much structural change because, it, keep in mind, they had three months of rehearsal for this show. They built it in. It was pretty much, it felt like a show that was mostly set other than having to be tweaked when it opened, you've got uh, you paid a bundle of money to uh, 
Anthony Hopkins to narrate it, so you have to keep his voice involved, and there's not a lot of editing that oh. you're going to be able to do with Tony Hopkins, and you're not going to bring him back in to re-read re it. So you're kind of married to that, and you're you're kind of uh, invested in all of the, the technology and the scenes as they're structured. So Awakening is looking at uh, a unique challenge in where um, the show is pretty much as it's going to be. They'll 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 rake through it. They'll make it you know the pace better, and they'll you know do a lot of work to make it more appealing for fans. But what their their issue is is to market the show to a, a an audience of uh, live entertainment uh, ticket buyers who are different this uh, in this era than they than it was when Larev opened. There are far more options of things to do in Las Vegas. They're, the attention spans are different. The demographic is younger. There, there's just so much more competition for this show and opening than than any of its scale ever in Las Vegas, and that's what they're up against right now. That's why you can't just roll out Awakening. It's so cool. Show some video at the airport and wait for the tide to come in. This is not this not the climate Awakening is working so in right now. Interesting. I want to get into that more. You know, there have been in the past some truly awful shows on the Strip. I, I haven't seen a lot of shows on the Strip, but I did see Run. Mm-hmm. Um, that show lasted like for a, the blink of an eye in 2019. It was universally ripped by critics. I saw one headline on, online that said, run for the exit. It reportedly <laughs> cost $60 million to create. And when it failed, they didn't try to rehab it. They just got rid of it. The Awakening cost $120 million. Mm-hmm. Is that the difference here? $120 million, they can't just scrap it? Uh, that's one difference. Yeah, it's 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 amazing that Awakening is double the the expenditure that Run was because Run was a a, a big uh, it was a big throw by Cirque. You know, um, I will say uh, Run Run was was a a riskier prospect if you want to compare the two than Awakening is. Awakening is is a more realized show and it's more familiar looking. It's just it's just uh, one step beyond uh, in many ways what we've seen in Las Vegas before. Run was Cirque's uh, attempt um, to create a stage show with Cirque elements in a graphic novel format and a real story. There, there was supposed to be a story, and but uh, honestly, they I went to it. And I I couldn't tell a story. We were laughing too much. Yeah, it, it was. It's that's the, that's the issue with Cirque. If you want to talk about Cirque, they they have a, a difficult time achieving story too because mm-hmm. of you know all of the acrobatic artistry that they've achieved. And the only the only storytelling show now really in Cirque is Ka. You know, that's the only one that even attempts. And that's yeah. just kind of a thread of a story. It's an implied almost story. Run, um, uh, the, I don't think they anticipated the negative uh, blowback immediately in Run. And Cirque had made the decision that they weren't going to chase, you know, for lack of a better word, they were going to run after uh, bad money with good. You yeah. know, they made the effort. They and, and you see what they have done since Run. To Cirque's credit, they t- created a completely different type of show, a more of a, I would say, maybe carnival atmosphere show uh, to replace Zumanity, which they did close over at New York, New mm. York with Mad Apple. Wait a minute. And you, that's, are you saying Mad Apple's, uh, its foundation is from Run? No, I'm saying it's not that. It's not a. It's not at all like that. Oh, they oh, came oh. back to. They came back to something that was just a set of um, of side acts and comedy bits and acrobatics and things that didn't have to have a storytelling thread yes. through it. A, a lot of really good comedy. A lot of really cool. And if you and if you're not, if this thing isn't your thing, if the basketball dunkers, maybe you've you've uh, you're kind of over it. That act ends and you're on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And then they bring out Harrison Greenbaum, who's a great comic, and he'll hold the show together. Boom, boom, boom. They've got a very great uh, atmosphere 
in the old Zumanity Theater. That's how Cirque has been able to adapt. Um, co- conversely, Awakening stands alone. There's no there's no partnership show for Awakening to kind of play off of and and market against. Its own its co-producer is the win, so that helps it because yeah. the win can can continue to invest in the show and especially invest in in marketing it and and promotions and keep it uh, why, moving why, forward. Why, why, why does marketing dictate success? Because it, it's a way to reach. Uh, uh, Ticket buyers in Las Vegas who don't maybe do the research before they come into town. So what you need to do, when I was in, in my uh, call with uh, Baz Halpin, the co-producer, and Bernie Eumann, uh, Michael Weaver, the, the uh, PR rep for Win Las Vegas, I, we were out, talked about marketing. They were mm-hmm. going to emphasize digital marketing and hit people when they get to Las Vegas or hit people generally with um, you know scenes from the show, um, accounts of the show. Uh, and do better outreach so you don't have to go on a um, – so the what used to be a, a, fa- a ticket buyer would go online and do a search for Las Vegas shows, and you'd come down and you'd go into Awakening, and you'd do your own mm-hmm. search that mm-hmm. way. You have to be a lot more aggressive, a lot more nimble. And that, that, is, this, that is a process that is very uh, difficult to attain. I know that they tried that um, uh, unsuccessfully with Bat Out of Hell. They tried to get a digital marketing mm-hmm. program. Uh, uh, strategy out there to get to, to fans, and it just never took hold. You have to get what's inside that theater, outside the theater, and show people why it's so cool. And that is, that's tough. You know, I don't think any amount of tweaking is gonna is gonna arrest that trend. But I, I've own. seen I've seen the ads online. I, to me, Awakening looked really cool. Like, oh, there are some some believe. stunning stunning things. It's an interesting show, Joe, because I when I thought, saw it the first time. Um, the only thing I could really compare it to is the first time I ever saw Mustaire, and that was the first Cirque show I ever saw. I was just overwhelmed. You know, I mean, it was really mm-hmm. over-circuited, you know? Mm-hmm. Too much stimulation, you know? It was just like, wow. And I walk, walk up to Halpin and, uh, and Michael Curry, who did the puppets, and I said, I don't really know what to say to you guys, you know, right now. I, I, it's <laughs> going to take a second to process this. So, uh, you know, what they when, when they do their market testing at, at Awakening, they talk to people in that environment. You know, they come out, you know, come to them right after the show. What did you think? What did mm-hmm. you like? What you, and, and often, you know, and fans I heard the other night when I went, you're saying, we, it was beautiful. You know, it sounded great. It was really cool. And, they, and then a lot of them were saying, I really don't know what was going on, but it was really <laughs> fun to look at. Okay. And, and that's kind of the, the, the most common, I think, response. And that is the response that they're using to uh, edit the show is you that know, one. It replaced La Rev. And mm-hmm. when La Rev first came out 15 years ago, they also had to retool it. I don't yeah. know if, if, the awakening people can learn from what Larev did. They that they're using that as kind of a model to oh. explain. Well, here's a, here's what they're doing. They're explaining their ongoing work, and saying, "Look, this happens in shows. Yeah, it, it does. And it does. All it did happen in that theater, but it also happens in shows. So Larev had a long runway. Larev it took about a year really to get down to where the concierge were starting to award it, and that's a long time. And to, by today's, it was a long time in 2005, but it's a long time by today's standards." And um, and so they're using that as the kind of look. You know, these, this happens in shows. You know, we'll go all the way back. Rick Gray will tell me the entertainment director at the Wind will tell me Miss Stare wasn't a hit when it started. You know, it took several months for the audience mm-hmm. to find Miss mm-hmm. um, over at Treasure Island. But we don't have that kind of patience with shows now. You know, yeah. shows the verdict has to is quicker. And if you have been damned by uh, 
uh, negative mass media, social media responses early on, people might not want to give you a second chance in today's marketplace. That's the, that's a real concern with awakening. And if you want to use the Larev example, that had a, a lot of chances to to get better and improve, but so did a lot of other shows that never worked out. I'm looking at um, Viva Elvis mm-hmm. over at Aria. They gave that show a lot of chances, a lot of overhaul, a lot of characters dropped, a lot of numbers changed. And Viva Elvis, by the end of it, uh, its run was very good, but it was by then it was too late. Uh, Zarkana, same theater, the thing at uh, so at Aria. Is the real happened. issue here the the quickness, the immediacy of social media? That's one issue, and the, and and the uh, prevalence of it. You know, that's uh, and it's not only it's not only uh, fan reviews necessarily, but it's people who are in mass media who are also uh, prominent on social media. You know, doubling up on the show, yeah. good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can see, you know, somebody from an actual um, media uh, pl- uh, platform, entertainment media platform, news media platform in Las Vegas, giving an account of the show, and that runs out on social media and it stays there. You know, and it's it's Forever. often retw- retweeted and referred to again. Uh, you have the online TripAdvisor, Yelp, and we never had, we didn't have that when uh, Larev opened either. So they're, they're fighting the fight on multiple fronts with a, with a show that is um, probably would have been um, really more effective in a, a previous era, maybe 15, 20 years what, ago. What about ticket prices? I wonder how much they play into it. Um, Vegas.com has the t- ticket prices at $155. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's too much because underneath the price on Vegas.com, it offers a payment plan. Yeah. Fourteen dollars. As soon as I saw that, I was like, "Wait a second. I just heard e- this. E- even yeah. even if I thought the ticket price was okay at one hundred fifty, what if I saw a payment plan underneath? It just like triggers something in me. Like I know, <laughs> I get it, man. I, what am I buying a ticket or a Hugo Boss <laughs> yeah. suit here? You know, or a car? Um, look, uh, I haven't heard that of any other show, and that this bears investigation. But um, I, I'm one at one. The reasoning is, if you're going to pay $155 on something, why not offer a payment plan for whatever it is? So maybe they're late to the dance. But I, uh, on the pricing front, uh, that has to play into it. Because um, like the other night I went to see um, – I, I went over to um, – I went to Awakening. And I, I, I took the ticket. I paid the fee. It was up to about 180 something dollars to mm-hmm, see for a mm-hmm. single – and it was in a, it was in the second row, which is the not the place to see Awakening. It's not the best seat. If if I were Awakening, by the way, if I were you guys with Awakening who were doing the seat map, I would kill the first two rows, just drop them, and start your seat map in the third row because that's about where the you, you can really appreciate the so show. If you're like too going low, to a movie in the first row, exactly. If yeah. you're too low in Awakening, one of the things that can happen if you're sitting up that close is you can see some of the the magic in a way that they don't intend you to see it if you know what you're looking for. You can there's some ways that you can figure out the tricks, and you really don't want that. So anyway, so I'm sitting there. Uh, 180 and change with fees. One seat. Then I go to the the concession stand. I buy um, a large uh, cola and a popcorn, $32 with my commemorative Awakening Cup. So now I'm up over $200 for a show in Vegas, and that's just one thing to do. Now you have to look at that. If if you think the average, you know, who is your clientele? Is the average ticket buyer coming into Las Vegas who's going to spend some time at the Link or or hang out on Fremont Street? They're not going to buy those tickets. They're your your refined upscale clientele. And and that is a fairly restricted demographic, I think, to fill a theater of that size. That's John Katzlamidis, columnist, Las Vegas Review-Journal. 
If there's something in the entertainment industry that's going on, he knows about it, and that's why he's here with us pretty regularly. We are taking your calls, though. We've been talking about the show Awakening, which is being retooled on the Strip. The $120 million show has not seen the audiences that it wants. Retooling, as we've talked about, happens with almost every show that happens on the Strip, and we'll see where that one goes. And joining us now from Las Vegas, Tom, welcome to the program. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. Awesome. Hey, I uh, thanks for taking my call. I actually have not seen Awakening, and I wasn't calling about that, but earlier you had talked about the ticket prices in general. Mm-hmm. And I'm a life, lifelong Vegas, well, born and raised here, moved away for some time. So it's, it's been a while. I moved back during the pandemic. It's been a while since I've seen something on the Strip. But we had some friends in town recently. And am I allowed to say names of shows? Sure. Stuff? All right. Uh, we went to go see Absinthe um, on, at Caesars. And I didn't buy the tickets. We we went, you know, it has, I don't know if you're probably familiar with it. It's got kind of a pop-up feel. Oh, in yeah. The front of scissors. Um, and afterwards, it was great, entertaining. You know, it was definitely off-color. Mm-hmm. Um, it delivered on, uh, on that. But um, uh, I was astonished by how much the tickets were for it. It was 200 bucks a seat there. And, you know, it's a cool variety show, and I'm actually especially even more shocked now that I found out that you're talking about Le Rev being 180. Um, it was 200, and, like, a drink was 30 bucks. And, and, and then the, the craziest part was that when you went to the bathroom, I went to the bathroom during the show, and they just usher you out into, like, these public restrooms <laughs> that had, like, were a level above, like, a porta potty at a, at a concert. Like, it was unbelievable how much money all of us dropped on something that I think should have been at most half the price. So I don't know if that's the same experience that's going on in shows all around, but I was, I don't know. Yeah, uh, Tom, great, great comment. Absinthe is a phenomenal show. John, I want you to weigh in on that. Yeah. um, Good points all the way around. Absinthe is the, is the, uh, probably gold standard. If you can handle a humor, it's probably the gold standard production show in the city still. It's been running since 2011 uh, for good reason. And one of the reasons that they're successful is their architecture. People have enjoyed going into the uh, Spiegel tent, the reinforced Spiegel tent, which is actually, I think, about a $4 million facility, and seeing the show. I've had that, uh, I I hear you on the uh, walking across the uh, Roman plaza to go to the bathroom, um, to to the restrooms across. You actually are physically taken out of the venue, which Shows is not optimum for shows to do anyway, regardless of what the quality of the facilities are. You don't like taking your audience, have, requiring them to leave the facility that way. There, you're going outside and back inside, and and vice versa for absinthe. The ticket prices for absinthe are up there with um, he said he had said Lareva uh, meaning awakening, but they're in that same class. They're in the, the top uh, tier with uh, all the Cirque shows, and uh, they run 14 shows a week. They sell well. They don't sell out every show, but they sell well enough to make a profit. And until the market adjusts where people aren't going to be willing to pay that price, they're going to stay there. And that is, um, that's just the market, uh, the market trend. Wow, really interesting. Tom, thank you for that call. I'm here with Review Journal's John Ketzalimidis. We've been talking about uh, the Wins show, Awakening, that replaced La Rev. In 2022, it's being retooled a little bit as uh, they found the audiences weren't what they wanted when it first opened. It's a $120 million show. So will it find its legs and live up to the legacy of La Breve, which it replaced? We, we shall see. Uh, 
John, I do want to uh, get into something about Cirque du Soleil. I mentioned this in the introduction. Uh, late last year, you interviewed an executive who said 2022's gross revenues in Las Vegas surpassed the mm-hmm. $450 million that it had made in 2019. How did it do that, especially when they had almost declared bankruptcy during the pandemic? Well, th- what happened with their ticket sales when re- they reopened is there was a, d- a new demand for certain shows. They had an increase in sales, especially in uh, Mystere at Treasure Island, you know, which was a show that was just kind of running. I would say, you know, I think it was around 60-70% capacity, maybe a little bit more than that. When Mystere reopened, it vaulted up into the O category, which is about like 90%. Because people realized that when you reopened the city, they wanted to get back to the shows that they they had heard about. And, you know, there was a renewed interest in a lot of the certain. Uh, production. So those that show and O, which also runs uh, two a night, seven a week, um, helped carry Cirque through the reopening of the pandemic. And that's really what pretty much the short explanation of what you're seeing. And, inter- you know, some international businesses returned. Cirque benefits from that, um, from the convention business and, you know, people from overseas returning to Las Vegas. It's very big with those crowds. Uh, uh, visitors from the UK have helped uh, repair uh, love, uh, you know, which was suffering for a time. That's helped. Um, and Mad Apple is a hit. You know, Mad Apple mm-hmm. is a hit at New York, New York, and, and is drawing a, a better uh, business than Zumanity did in its last days and is wow. a less of a lift, uh, less costly and a, show. And a totally so, different concept. Totally. It, it's mm-hmm. like a vaudeville. Yeah, it's a, it is. It's a, as I say, it's probably it's a, it's a carnival show where Zumanity was, a, was an adult uh, uh, an adult review, really. Um, so, you know, they've uh, they've benefited uh, on a number of fronts with, with multiple productions. And, and Cirque ha- has gone through some executive level personnel changes. Uh, you know, they had the, the almost bankruptcies. Four shows have closed in Las Vegas alone. They've had these uh, personnel changes, as I mentioned. What, what explains, I guess, their resiliency? You know, I think it's... Um, I think Cirque owes a lot of its success to, first of all, consistency. It's a consistently top-line product. No matter what Cirque show you see, you're going to get a great performance, even if that performance might not be your thing. It's going to be expertly produced. They've got a lot of volume. You know, they're returning their touring shows. They've got the Messy show about Lionel Messi that's going to be touring the world. That will do great business. Yeah, there's a, there's a show about Lionel Messi, believe me. Mukhtar, Omar Sharif Mukhtar, who was in Las Vegas, is helping put that together. And boy, were they happy about the World Cup final, by the way. <laughs> right. Really happy. But here in Las Vegas, you have volume. You have many, many shows running a lot. And you can sustain, uh, you know, maybe not great performances out of certain shows at certain times by by knowing that you have a lot of shows doing pretty well and one show oh just killing it which has sold uh, you know more tickets than any show ever i think can, can you explain that i, I that actually oh it was the first show i ever saw in mm-hmm. las vegas but almost 25 years ago i was completely blown away by yeah, it yeah still and I, I have seen i've seen one other show since then i which was run so the two shows, Cirque shows you've seen a run and oh, maybe the best. You've in established the, worst. the tent posts. I will give you that. <laughs> but I mean, is it? It was mind blowing. Oh, is, is that what explains its longevity? Just, I mean, 
how was that last? But but other ones because there's to me there's no story to it. It was just like stunning. No, yeah, stunning there's no story to it. Yeah. And there's for an example of how you can you can get away with this without having to tell you know beginning, middle, end. Everybody lives happily ever after story. O is still unique. There's no show like it. Even when LaRev was running in its way, it was not quite like O. And you don't have anything with that kind of aquatic staging. And it's just a beautiful experience. I mean, sometimes the shows are just greatly conceived and greatly executed. Um, and, and O is a good example. Um, and some of the other cert, uh, titles, Ka, Love, you could you know pick them up. MJ1. Awakening, we've talked about, is in that classification, is in that strata. And and another thing that these shows all have to be aware of is what is the show that you, people are going to want to see when they come to Lost? Like, oh, you have to see this. Outside everybody of the headliner. Says, everybody says O. Oh. And O oh usually is the answer. And that's the that's the, the thing that uh, a new show of, of large scale is going to have to know uh, that's not a headliner show, that's not Adele or Katy Perry or, you know, Luke mm-hmm. Bryan or any well, of the, you know, Keith we, Urban, you know. We've been focusing on The Awakening and we have a caller from Las Vegas who wants to talk about that. Stephen, welcome to the program. Or Steph. Welcome to the program. Hi. Yes, it's Steph. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Go ahead, Steph. Um, my comment is this. I got a chance to see Awakening. Um, I think it was the premiere. And my comment is simply this. You can't connect with the characters because you really don't know what's going on. They pass out a, like an informational book that tells you about the plot. And unless you look at that before seeing the show, it's very, very hard to follow the plot, what's going on. And it's almost like um, I can compare it to watching a foreign movie with no subtitles. You can kind of figure out what's going on, but you can't, you're not allowed to really connect with the characters and what they're going through and what's happening because it's just hard to follow. I think if they improved that, it would, it would do better. Yeah. Great comment, Steph. So, so John, is the retooling over? I mean, you talked about the difficulty of <laughs> no. retooling it because of the because of the Anthony Hopkins uh, narrative, and how do you do it? How do you edit what he's saying if if that's embedded in the show? You know, I know stuff out there. Um, I um I, I made the comment that um, doing some uh, uh, f- in a for lack of a better term subtitle effects in the show would help it. You know, it would help with the uh, with the voiceover. Hmm. I made that comment, and the. the no, the kind of the comment back to me from someone involved with the show is that we have so much going on already. We don't want to take the attention yeah. away from you know what we're supposed. But I was, I was even thinking of that the other night when I went, when I saw it. It would be helpful to have. They've got so much great video quality in there. You could you could have uh, words floating over the the scenes if you wanted to, talking about what um y- you know what each scene is supposed to reflect in this in, in their storyline. But um. That's a good point. You know, I would, I would hope that something like that is on the table if you're trying to really, you know, uh, convey your your message, the message of the show. Yeah. I would hope that that would be in play. Yeah, actually, we, we we did get from a listener uh, this uh, <clears throat> email, who writes: First, we were saddened by the turnout. The theater was maybe twenty five percent full. Normally, the first row would be fantastic, but due to the stage floor moving up and down, rows one through four spent part of the show looking under the stage as it mm-hmm. blocked our view. Other than that, as the theater is in the round and there are no central themes, any seat in any in a section would be fine. The staging was fantastic, as were the costume creations, but the story was a little hard to understand unless you read the show characters and concept in the handbook. There seemed to be long, unrelated scenes between the main staging of events, and which is 
really following what we've been saying. Yeah, yeah, and that that they do give out a, a booklet. It's not just like a playbill; it's an extensive program that d- describes the effects. And another thing about uh, uh, awakening, um, there was about fifty percent capacity when I was there, and I'm being generous. The night I was there it was Friday. Um, uh, Katy Perry went to the show uh, recently, and her show play is also. Uh, uh, de- uh, designed by Baz Halpin, who did Awakening, mm-hmm. and she sent out a tweet that was talking about how great Awakening is, and she's got 108 million Twitter followers. And I'm like, okay, you know, w- this is a time for something like that. Maybe this is uh, this would have been better served when it opened and have Katy Perry chime in on it or invite her to the show and do something with it. But that's the kind of kick that they could use. I don't know if that's going to um, lead to ticket sales, but it got a lot of attention when she did that. Well, we hope it does well. A lot of people rely on that show. Uh, people's livelihoods, their lives, and their businesses rely on it. So we hope it can pull itself out of that. I'm here with Review Journal columnist John Kislamidis, who follows entertainment throughout Las Vegas. I, I think every night, maybe every night, you go to something entertainment-wise in Las Vegas. About, yeah. Just about mm-hmm. every night. True. And I'm also here with Kip Kelly. He's the creative director of the Beverly Theater, which is going to open this week in downtown. Kip, welcome. Thank you. In the presence of royalty, thank you for having me. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. I will try to keep up. I will, you guys are encyclopedias here. Is Prince Harry here? <laughs> I, I do have one question, though, before we get to Kip, about you two at the MSG Sphere. Yes. The monosodium glutamate sphere. <laughs> Actually, that's Madison Square Madison Garden Madison Square sphere. Garden. Not on now, the you, you had table. broke the news that you two would open the Sphere months ago, and then it was confirmed in the Super Bowl commercial two weeks ago. Was this maybe the splashiest, uh, most expensive residency announcement ever? Well, I don't know about that. What I had reported uh, where my break was, was that the timing of the residency was going to be in September. That was my, it's been uh, known to be the targets 28th and 29th of September for U2, the last Friday and Saturday of of the month. I think those, the 28th and 29th of those dates. Um, It was, it's, Probably the most inventive way to announce a residency ever in Las Vegas to, to put a Super Bowl commercial up with the you know the the sphere with the uh, the baby's head baby that head really in there. Interesting. And uh, I was reminded of Larev actually when I saw that because that was kind of the image in Larev yeah. too. Um, but um, yeah, right now I would feel my honest assessment of the U two shows right now is I, I will feel a lot more comfortable when they put those tickets on sale when they knock down those dates and tell us that not just the opening dates but the last other six weekends that they're planning over uh, 12 performances that I, you know, it's a lot to open that venue by September. There's a lot of work to be done. And from what I understand, it's, it's a race right now. It's, and you know, Kip can tell you what it's like to try and open a venue, <laughs> even, uh, even the Beverly, right? Yes. You can imagine something that's $2.1 mm-hmm. billion dollars or 2.3, whatever the cost is. It's extensive, but yeah, you too is the, is the act. They're going to be, it's not a residency. Actually, they say it's a, a venue launch. They prefer that term. So you two's not buying and not, not married to the term residency for this. But yeah. they are coming with an Octung Baby um, fashion show. That'll be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, but you also reported you two could make more per show than any other artist, even Adele, uh-huh. who reportedly is making $1.2 million a show. But there are a lot more seats in the, at the Sphere than her 4,100 at the Coliseum. Yeah, 17,500 over uh, 12 shows, and they get 90% of the face value ticket 
ticket take. Oh. So we did the math, and it would be if they sell like they're supposed to sell here, because this is the only place in the world you're going to be able to see you two. They will they will make more money per show than anyone ever in Las Vegas, and that includes uh, Lady Gaga, Adele, Celine Dion, Britney Spears. That was another big one. Um, yeah, if all th- all things, but that place needs to come online and be ready. Uh, in, in its targeted uh, time horizon. All right. And, and if we have more time, we'll get back to that. But I want to I get to Kip Kelly. Again, he is coordinator at the Beverly Theater, which is going to bring independent movies, literary events, and live music to downtown Las Vegas. And Kip, you're four days away from your grand opening. There are events on the calendar. Tickets are available. Uh, I wonder what community response has been. Uh, the community response has been incredible. Um, we are four days, uh, and as John pointed out, we are freaking out, but we're doing that uh, with some grace, hopefully. We've got, uh, we've got some things to iron out as well, but we're ready for Friday. Um, I, think, I think the city's ready for this. I think um, the community's ready for this, and uh, everything that I've seen uh, you know, in my little echo chamber online has uh, reinforced the idea that this is what Las Vegas wants and needs. Yeah. Now, the bookings so far, are, are they what you expected? I wonder, or I wonder if your philosophy on booking has changed, or, or tell me what you want and what, what might have changed. Um, I, I think, um, you know, Beverly Rogers imagined a space where um, we could lift up the independent voices and kind of bring them into the mainstream. And so, um, that starts with independent film and, and that's what we're anchored by. So, um, any of those titles that, uh, that haven't traditionally had the screen time that we thought that they, that we think they might've deserved here in Las Vegas is kind of what we're, we're aiming for. Um, things that, um, that are impactful or meaningful or, or tell a very unique story that, uh, that Las Vegans haven't been able to, uh, to see in the theaters. Um, and I think that booking strategy remains even to this day. Um, we understand what that climate means. We're dealing with independent film and an independent film. The first thing to get cut is the marketing budget, right? So, uh, we're, we're, we're showing titles that no one has seen, uh, but maybe even more importantly, uh, we're showing titles that a lot of people may not have heard of. And so it's our goal to make sure that we are, um, eventizing the, the venue in the right way. So we're, we're proactive. We're always in the conversation. Um, I think traditionally exhibitors have been a reactive space for studios. You know, here's the mm-hmm. film, play it. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't, we can't do that. We can't be that, which is why we kind of designed a space that we can be more proactive and more aggressive with our programming. So we're in that conversation all the time. Now the grand opening is March 4th and 5th. <clears throat> that will be three literary events in conjunction with UNLV's Black Mountain Institute and the Writer's Block. But one day before that, you're going to show the first film. It's called Past Lives. It's a 2023 release from the studio A24, which uh, incidentally is predicted to clean up at the Oscars in, in two weeks. Why this film to start? Well, um, we have some relationships with uh, Killer Films, who produced this film. Uh, we'll have Christine Vachon and Pamela Coffer, who, who produced this in-house uh, on Friday. Uh, we'll also be lucky enough to have the director in, in, in the seats as well. And... Uh, We've been working with Killer Films of the last probably eight to ten months to figure out a good film that we thought we uh, would kind of hit the vein of the Beverly Theater, um, and especially for a grand opening and a kind of sneak preview uh, of what's to come. Um, and this one just played Sundance. The timing worked out. Um, we think it's um, it's a really cool uh, title. It's a really great film uh, with a lot of great people involved, and we think um, it is the ethos of what the Beverly Theater will be, which is independent cinema. 
And on March 5th, you have this other film. And I just saw from your website, you know, an ad for it. It looked really interesting. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Yeah. This is an Oscar nominee best uh, for best documentary that explores the role of Purdue Pharma in the opioid crisis. Was it a, a priority to get in some movies before the Oscars? Uh, I don't know if it was a priority. Um, I think it was a priority for us to look at titles that have been nominated. Um, our timing of opening kind of just coincided with that. Uh, we've also got a title, uh, a film called EO, which was nominated for Best International Film. Uh, so we've got a few um, that we thought would get some some awards during awards season. Uh, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is a great film. It's for, it's really powerful. Um, what Nan Golden uh, is doing and has done uh, to Purdue Pharma as a photographer and, and to really rally the arts community uh, around that cause uh, is pretty impressive. I am not a movie reviewer by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, these films are, um, I think, must-see in the world of independent film. Well, what about cult classics? Um, Escape from New York. I heard, I saw that you're going to have that. What about, you know, to me, a cult classic is, is Blade Runner. Uh, yes, Rocky Horror. Yes, yeah. well, we'll talk about that a bit. You know, um, uh, I, I have a really great programming partner. His name is Mike Plant. Um, he works for Sundance. He's also a programmed uh, for Cinevegas out here many years ago. Um, and we, uh, for the last two years, kicked around, I think, every week on our Zoom, um, should we do Rocky Horror? And it's not that we didn't think uh, it's it wouldn't work. It's like, has it been done too much to death? Yeah. And, and it, it, the reality is it has been done too much. But... <laughs> But does too much mean that we shouldn't do it? Um, because we want to we want to be uncommon, right? That's kind of our goal is is to stage these uncommon cinematic experiences. And so uh, we don't have Rocky Horror on the, the the lineup right now. We're trying to see what else we can come up with. Maybe we can create our own kind of um, interactive experiences late night with some other films. Mm. Uh, I will say that uh, on March seventeenth, which is St. Patrick's Day, we will be showing Leprechaun Three, which is a Vegas centric <laughs> movie. Maybe that becomes some sort of a I've classic. seen it. I have it seen is a, it. it. I've seen all the Leprechaun uh, oeuvre. I yeah. uh, I said I'm not a movie reviewer. I will say that movie is terribly awesome, um, <laughs> and we're excited it to. Is awesome, uh, it is awesome. And I will tell you, uh, it took a while to find out who owns Leprechaun 3. Uh, Mike and I had to chase that one down for a couple months. But we found him. He was, he was hanging out somewhere. So many Had one copy in his pocket and said, here you go. Are, are there <laughs> going to phone. be, are you going to have movies every night? Yes. How, how often? Really? Uh, seven nights a week. Seven nights a week. Give me an average ticket price. Ten bucks. Wow, that, that's, that's fascinating. You know, we did have... Uh, a theater, Village Square, mm-hmm. which showed it was really the only place in town you could get independent films. And some of the films would be in Tagalog or in, in, in a, sure. a foreign language completely. Um, that has closed. Uh, do you think this is going to be more than that? Uh, I do. I think, um, y- you know, uh, Village Square was a good spot. Um, I, I appreciate what they did uh, for, for putting some independent titles on their screens. Um, I will admit candidly, I think it's a little bit sad that Las Vegas, when associated in an art house, the closest thing we have is the second largest movie chain in, in the United States. So that I think that is sad. Um, so hopefully the Beverly Theater uh, becomes not just filling that void, but, you know, takes it into the stratosphere because we plan to program independent films seven days a week. And that is what will make up uh, 100 percent of our screen time. So. Um, you know, you add that to uh, the literary events and obviously uh, the live events and all of the different ways we can eventize the space. Uh, this is really kind of a, um, a, a, 
what we hope is uh, the art house of the future that we that we think other people can model, and and maybe Village Square takes a second look and they come back with something else. If if we do this right, there's going to be a lot more uh, independent film houses in Las Vegas. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds like it's going to be, um, I guess, a happening place. All something happening every day. We, you know. Um, and we are anchored by independent film, but I think um, our um, our widget is experiences. That's what we're selling. We're trying to offer um, multiple ways that the community can come together and connect. We have Segway, which is uh, our, our jazz terrace. Uh, that's kind of our free spot to hang out. Um, we'll have concerts. We'll have literary events. We'll have independent film. We want the community to have faith in us as a venue that if they just show up at any given time, something cool is happening, and, and they didn't have to find it online or they didn't have to have the newspaper tell them a showtime. Yes, those will be listed, but uh, p- my original point was we really have to be proactive in this, and mm-hmm. we really have to be aggressive, and we can't sit and wait and hope that a summer blockbuster saves the quarter. Right. We have to find ways to elevate the titles we're playing. We have to find ways uh, to be in the conversation. Um, John talked about the awakening in the earlier segment. Somebody spending two hundred dollars a night to go to that plus, right? We we're we are we are not awakening. We are not the sphere, but we are competing for people's entertainment dollar in this city. And um, we we operate as a not-for-profit, but uh, we're not a charity. We we hope the programming that we bring to Las Vegas is worthy of that entertainment dollar every night. Do you think you're going to have a, a film festival? And I ask that because you told Desert Companion Magazine, which is Kane Paris Magazine, that you hope to have one. Yes. Uh, well, we have, there's a lot of film festivals in the city that we are working with right now. Um, whether or not we do our own, we're not, not sure. Um, but film festivals are certainly a part of what we do at the Beverly Theater, and uh, I think there's enough in town. Uh, dare I say, maybe enough, <laughs> maybe too many. <laughs> Everyone's got a film festival, but there's a lot of good ones um, that have been, you know, they have history with Las Vegas, and I think a lot of people uh, enjoy those. And so finding a way to fit those in with our one screen is a priority. And live music. The theater calls itself an intentional live music venue. What's that mean, first? Well, I think um, we don't have to worry. Uh, being anchored by independent film and having our literary events, we've kind of comprised our three-pillar uh, program offerings um, to make sure that we didn't ever have to just fill something for the sake of getting something on the calendar. Um, and I oh, think it's. I, I, okay. I, I think um, concerts are, are going to be a big part of what we do. Um, we, we hope that we can bring some uh, some touring acts to Las Vegas. We think that we have designed a space that um, acts that might skip because they don't want to play the strip because they've already played. They're playing to tourists. We, we hope we're, we're designing a space where they can reach um, actually the Las Vegas uh, market and not just our, our, our visiting economy. So we're trying to get those bands come through town that might not have stopped that would do a thousand cap room. We're at 500 close. Um, but we think we can get a thousand cap to 1200 cap band to stop here and play, whereas they might've skipped. Um, and, and, and we don't have to do 10 a month because we have a calendar. Our doors are open to independent film and we'll show a film if we don't have a concert on deck. Um, sometimes as a venue, if that's all you do, um, you have to really scramble to come up with with other kind of live acts and live performances mm. that may not do so well. So we're really hoping to only bring those things that are going to sell out. Las Vegas rapper Echo is listed as your first musical act. He's a rapper. Are, are, are you going to include all genres or what, what are you aiming for? We are. We are. Uh, Echo was important for us because, um, first off, he's a, a Vegas native. Um, and he represents independent music probably more than any other independent artist uh, out of Las Vegas. Um, 
he outworks everybody. He doesn't have a label. He doesn't have a major distribution deal. He packs and sells his own merch out of his garage. And uh, he has um, he's developed quite a following on on social media. Um, he's got a lot of streams. Uh, he's a fun show. Um, and uh, his tickets went out in 24 hours. So uh, we're excited to have him. Uh, caller Susan from Las Vegas called. She had to get off, but uh, she left a message. Will there be any live local theater at the Beverly? Yeah, the, t- the tricky part about um, theater right now is you have to commit to, uh, you know, a lot of those are extended runs. So if we're going to do any live theater, uh, any any anybody touring or anybody locally, um, you've kind of got to give up your space for two to three weeks to make sure that you can get in the run that they want. Right now, we, we've got to make sure that we, we're fulfilling our commitments to our distributors and our movie partners. So it's mostly anything that we can do in a one-night-off kind of thing. And, and if there's live theater that we can pull off in a one-night-only or – or an every Friday kind of thing, we'll definitely look at those. And, and that is part of it, uh, just not right away. Now, back to literary events, how, how big a role is the Black Mountain Institute playing in this? Well, um, we've partnered with the Writer's Block right next door, um, and, and they're really heading up and curating our, uh, our literary programming. Uh, Scott Seeley and Drew Cohen do an amazing job uh, programming that out of uh, the Writer's Block and their small space next door. Um, the, the goal for Segway uh, was to be a, a space that they could evolve their literary programming. Um, and then BMI obviously was an obvious partner for them to come in with the writer's block and say, hey, we've got events too, so what else can we use for Segway? So um, having Black Mountain Institute uh, and their writer's block, we don't need any other literary programming help. I mean, they have got it covered. Um, and um, Segway is going to be a really cool hang because of that. And uh, there will be times where some of those events move into the theater, but um, we really kind of designed that extra outdoor space uh, to be large enough uh, for these events to evolve. And I, I think Scott and Drew have hit a point to where they can expand because the critical mass at the Codex next door has been hit. Did you set a uh, for maybe a yearly or a monthly goal for the number of literary events that you'll have there? Uh, outside of a couple months in the summer, Scott and Drew are, are pretty aggressive, and, and we've we've decided that that space is going to be open to them, you know, seven nights a week if needed. But uh, realistically, it's probably twice a week, especially once we get into season. Uh, a lot of it's depending on uh, tours and, and authors coming to town, but it's probably a, at least twice a week. Twice a week. And also, uh, by the way, I'm talking to Kip Kelly. He's creative director at the Beverly Theater. John Katzlamidis is a columnist for the Las Vegas Review Journal. And, and John, you're always going to live music, you're seeing shows, lounges is all over town. What would you like to see at the Beverly? And we have a couple of minutes left, and I don't know if this would be too much for me to ask of you, but maybe you could, because you've been taking singing lessons for a couple of years now. <laughs> Do it. Maybe you could... <laughs> Do it. For what you'd like to see at the theater, maybe you could sing the answer. You know, I, I'm developing a Blues Brothers act. I Sold. Just, I just thought of it. The pitch is over. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> Hey, bartender. Hey, man, look at here. I chug one, chug two, chug three, four glasses of beer. Um, I'm interested in the versatility of the Beverly. Uh, that's what I'm interested in, the actual the actual theater. You know, I think, did you say 500 uh, capacity total yeah, for the, for yeah. the we'll proper theater? Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a, you can do a lot with that. You can do, you know, and, and your the film... Um, the film vision there, when you start talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show, I've seen various uh, adaptations of that. Mm-hmm. I think the Beverly's for the, to find the next one, right. not the one existing. You we know? agree. That's, that's where you. I'm mm-hmm. thinking whatever the next version of, the, of that is should be seated at the Beverly. That should be one of the— So you don't think it should be Big Lebowski? 
Well, if we have some kind of live performance with the Big Lebowski, maybe. But um, the next Big Lebowski, the thing that is right now being developed that will be that, could be uh, premiered at the Beverly. And I think that's what's exciting about it. And the fact that it's within walking distance and uh, i got to get with my band so we can get booked there. All right. That's you know John, John Caslamitas, <laughs> entertainment columnist at the Review Journal. Kip Kelly, the creative director of the Beverly Theater, which opens this week. I want to thank them. Thanks, you guys. Anytime. Thank you. Appreciate it.